Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Chase Cannon, and I'm here with my colleague, Suzanne Spradley. We're both attorneys with NFP's legal and compliance team, and we're here on the podcast to break down some of the trickier issues out there facing employers with respect to their compliance efforts. Today, Suzanne, we're going to jump into something called reference-based pricing, and this is a trend out there and um, is gaining a little bit of momentum, and we wanted to talk about it in a little bit more depth. So can you start us off with a description of what reference-based pricing is? Well, yes, and you're you're right in that self-insured employers are looking for ways to curb costs. And so this is one of the methods that is starting to be utilized by some self-insured plans, um, and it's called reference-based pricing. And it's in it's a situation in which a plan establishes amount that it will pay providers based off a reference point. Um, and it's essentially it's either cost plus pricing or a reference point pricing. So think of, for example, Medicare as being the reference point. The plan would pay between, say, 150% to 200% of Medicare rates. In some instances, they may base it off the hospital's cost. Plus, um, you may ask yourself, how do we know what the hospital's actual costs are? Mm -hmm. But remember that they have to report their actual costs into CMS annually. And now even the Trump administration has required hospitals to post their list prices or their charge masters online. I don't know if you've ever tried to look that up. It's very difficult to to understand if you don't have a degree in how, in, how to decipher these medical codes, but yeah. it is available for the public. Sounds like a Da Vinci Code right. worthy, uh, <laughs> endeavor. So can you give us an example to help us understand this reference-based pricing a little bit better? Yeah, let's start just generally. We're going to start, let's say a hospital assigns a bill rate of $2,500 for a particular procedure. In your traditional PPO model, the PPO networks are negotiating prices with the providers as a percentage of the billed charge. Um, that amount is going to be significantly higher than Medicare, but it's going to be lower than their billed rate. And the plan will agree to pay that amount um, in order to get the providers to accept that rate in full so they won't go after the patient for the differential. The part of the problem with this pricing model is, is it's based off this artificially inflated rate called the billed rate. So the negotiated rate is a discount of something that may not reflect the actual cost. It may not even be reflective of the market value. So how do we know that we're getting a reasonable rate? Reference-based pricing, on the other hand, is kind of a bottom-up approach instead of this top-down approach. And when it's tied to Medicare, it's more predictable. We all know Medicare rates are low um, because Medicare is one of the largest payer of health claims, and so it, it has significant buying power. Mm -hmm. But it also has access to this actual cost data that the hospitals have to report into to CMS. Um, now, I will say I'm not suggesting that all providers should accept only Medicare rates. We've seen plenty of studies that have shown that that would cause multiple providers and hospital systems to go out of business. Um, but it is something to consider in terms of a bottom-up approach for reference-based pricing. So let's go back to our example. You have $2,500 billed rate for a procedure. Now, let's assume the Medicare rate is $500 and the reference-based pricing is 200% of Medicare. So that would make the payment amount $1,000. We have a differential there of $1,500. In a, in a situation where the hospital has not accepted the reference-based pricing, the hospital will go after the patient for the difference, what we call balance billing. Right. So typically, in a reference-based pricing scenario, you will have either the patient, you'll have the plan, or a vendor like a TPA or RBP, which I'm going to refer to as reference-based pricing vendor, will then try to negotiate the balance bill. All right. So this sounds ripe for litigation, right? A couple of different numbers that are out there, a couple of different people that could potentially be liable for paying that uh, balance bill. 
So what's going on with litigation there? Well, we, we have seen an uptick in litigation the past few years related to reference-based pricing, and we'll we'll get to that in a moment. But first, let's dig into the process a little bit more and discuss the pros and the cons and kind of the, the logistics of how this works. So to begin with, a plan could structure reference-based pricing in generally one of three ways. First, and the most common way, would be utilizing the RBP with only certain identifiable, predictable procedures like a knee replacement or an MRI or a hip replacement. And by predictable, I mean predictable by established protocols. I don't mean necessarily by the amount a hospital would charge for that. Mm-hmm. And I bring that up because there was an interesting kind of case study using CalPERS, which is the California Public Employee Retirement System. They turned to reference-based pricing. They noticed that they were being billed between 15000 and 110000 for knee and hip surgeries, just depending on where which facility was performing that procedure. Wow, that is a huge difference. That's We're a not huge difference. About five or even ten thousand dollars, almost a hundred thousand dollar difference. And this is considered a fairly predictable procedure. Right. So they used reference based pricing and they settled on a fixed price of around thirty thousand dollars, which on average saved them about nine thousand dollars per surgery. Mm-hmm. So in some cases the hospitals were being paid more than what they had previously been paid, in other cases obviously less. But it seemed like a good um, methodology for approaching the the providers. It's not as useful for chronic illnesses that require like frequent medical treatments, but if you are going to do it on a um, on a situation which you're identifying selective procedures, those that are predictable, it works quite well. So I mentioned that there were three different types generally that that plans will utilize. The next level up would be a pl- a plan that utilizes reference-based pricing for only their out-of-network providers. So it's replacing that usual and customary pricing. And then finally, which is not as common, but we're starting to see it some, it's using RBP for all billed claims except for emergency care services. And we'll dig into that in a minute on why. Um, We don't see that as much. It's a little bit more risky approach and really takes buy-in on the part of the plan, the employer and the employees. But that is all in reference-based pricing. Okay. So good explanation there, helping set the baseline for what RBP is and how uh, some success stories maybe from CalPERS there. But getting back to the employers, what do employers need to consider if they are contemplating using an RBP model? One of the things um, that they need to think about is the ACA. So we did receive guidance via the DOL FAQs that states that depending on the cost-saving design, the amounts paid by plan participants over and above that reference price, in other words, the balance billed amount, may count towards their out-of-pocket maximums. And if that's the case, that would wipe out the, the cost savings for the plan. The logic behind the regulator's guidance is that if an employee seeks care from a provider that does not accept reference pricing, and they're aware of those that do, then they're making an educated and informed decision, and then they can be responsible for the build charges. So the guidance is the ACA FAQ 21. And again, it depends really on whether the plan is deemed to have taken reasonable measures to ensure that there's adequate access to providers at the reference price. It's similar in a traditional model to when you have out-of-network providers or you have in-network providers. So it provides kind of a similar logic. And they outlined five different areas, conditions that have to be met in order for that balance build amount not to count towards out-of-pocket maximums. Again, because that would result in the plan losing that cost savings from reference-based pricing. Right. So what are those five conditions? So the first condition is that it has to be used 
to for only non-emergency services. And the reason being is that the individual must have time to contemplate whether or not they want to utilize this particular provider or not. Right. If you're in an emergency situation, you don't really have time to sit down and contemplate or educate yourself on that. Right. So similar to how they use for out-of-network providers and in-network providers, they, the ACA also addresses that. And then the second is the plan must have an adequate number of, of providers that do accept the reference price. So again, it's this idea that you've got to have a, a sufficient in-network type arrangement. Um, and this is obviously selective, but a plan could look at its adequacy requirements, similar to how a state insurance department does. So it looks at whether, you know, the distance that you have to travel to get to the provider, um, the wait times associated with that provider, those are type of quality metrics, in a sense, that could also, that could be utilized. And then third, there also has to be other assurances that the provider meets reasonable quality standards. The fourth is that the plan must have a process for granting exceptions to the reference price plan payment, meaning um, they must be able to pay a provider that may not otherwise meet their standards if there's not one uh, that meets the standards available in the area. And then fifth, the information about the services and the reference price must be disclosed in the SPD and the plan documents. Again, this is the idea that they want participants to be fully informed and so that they don't have surprises with the balance billing. Um, and this is really key in mitigating li liability overall. Plans should disclose to the plan participants not only information about the reference-based pricing structure, the list of services that it applies to, if it's limited to certain procedures, for example, as well as a list of the providers that would accept that RBP payment in full, and explanation of what happens if they don't accept that payment so they understand that they could be subject to balanced billing. Right. So this seems like there could be a lot of lawsuits coming from this because you have a fairly complicated law with the ACA and you just outlined five specific requirements. You have a DOL FAQ and now you have... Uh, Underlying it all is this RBP idea that's somewhat new, right? Reference-based pricing. Tell us about some of the lawsuits that have come out of this. 2018, there were cases that cropped up in Oregon, California, Colorado, Nebraska, Utah, and Florida that all pertain to issues over things like the pricing methodology, the complexity of reference-based pricing, the plan language, whether it supported it or not, or was you know disclosed information sufficiently, access to services, and then, of course, balance billing obviously resulted in lawsuits. All of this were the result of plans utilizing an, a reference-based pricing model. Most uh, settled, so we don't have a lot that actually um, went on to full trial. And typically, the plaintiffs were the hospitals turning around and suing either the plan, uh, the TPA, or the individual, or all, all above. But there's one case in particular that we'll kind of dive into that seems to be a, a, a case that many reference. And it involved um, an alleged breach of a signed patient contract that outlined payment terms on the hospital admission form. And think of it, when you go into a hospital, you have to sign a lot of forms. In this case, I mean, and we'll dig into this a bit, but there was language in there that said that they would accept the pricing. And the court found that the hospital's charges were ambiguous. And so the charges were slashed considerably to the point that the court identified as, as really what the relative value of those services. So just to get more specific into this case, the case involved a woman named Lisa French, and she sought back surgery at St. Anthony North Health Campus that's in Colorado, north of Denver. Mm -hmm. um, and it was related to her back pain. So it was considered an elective procedure. Her employer had a self-funded ERISA plan. She was told prior to surgery that she would owe about $1,300 and she immediately paid $1,000. 
um, her contract, which was what she signed when she was um, it, when she went into the hospital, it included phrasings that said, for example, that she understood that she that she understood that she was financially responsible to the hospital or her physicians for charges that were not covered or paid pursuant to the authorization. Right. So, standard disclosure, right? Very standard language. So St. Anthony's billed her insurance plan three hundred three thousand, almost three hundred four thousand dollars after the surgery. Um, it also included two pre-surgical consultations, and and the pricing was based off their charge master billing schedule. So as a reminder, um, each hospital has its own charge master prices for the thousands of services that it provides, and these are generally considered proprietary information. This is not information that they really wanted publicized. Um, they used it internally, and they would they would use it to negotiate reimbursement rates with their private insurers. They also use it when they have an individual who's uninsured. Um, but consequently, their charge master prices are, are generally uh, utilized as a method of negotiation, but they're not necessarily reflective of their actual cost of care. Usually significantly higher. Right. right. So back to the lawsuit. We're going to uh, French's employer the, and their plan contracted with this healthcare consulting firm. It's called Elap Services. And they determined that their actual charges came out to about $70,000. Um, and between their co-insurance and what the insurance paid, they paid the hospital around $75,000. So the parent company, Centura, and I mentioned that name because if you want to look up the lawsuit, it is based off the Centura name. They sued French, the participant in state district court, and they sought an additional two hundred close to $230,000. Wow. The defense claimed that their charge master rates were grossly excessive and that the defendant really had no choice of signing that agreement when they were admitted into the hospital. So it made that rate unconscionable. And so therefore, it should be unenforceable. Um, and, you know, as I love these little facts in here. The defense brought one expert, whereas the hospital had three experts and they <laughs> spent over $100,000 on their experts. But that didn't help them. In the end, um, the jury awarded the hospital seven hundred and sixty-six dollars. Wow, compared to an almost three hundred over three hundred thousand dollar original bill. Right, plus the cost of the lawsuit. Right, the case revealed just really how murky that hospital billing systems are, and it shows also why hospitals really don't want to get into a lot of discovery mm -hmm. in these types of lawsuits, and they tend to settle. It was interesting as it came out in there, which something that we all know is that the rates that are established are, are based off of the hospital understanding that they're going to make less on non-paying clients or Medicare or Medicaid um, than they do with the private pay patients. And so all of that came out in the case um, and the court and the jury cited for the defendant, in this case, the per participant. Right. So that result sounds great, at least for the participant, right? Didn't have to come out of pocket I mean, a $230,000 bill for one person, probably uh, not going to get that amount anyway from most people. Uh, but still, this seems very stressful for the participant. So well, talk it, to that a little bit. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, that's really probably one of the greatest drawbacks of reference-based pricing, because even if the TPA or, or the employer agrees to help the participant negotiate a settlement or step in and get involved in their legal defense, it's still very very stressful for someone to be involved in a lawsuit and have a large amount hanging over their head for potential, potentially being uh, liable for. Mm -hmm. So uh, something that ERISA plans need to consider also as it relates to their fiduciary obligation, in addition to really providing sufficient disclosure so that participants understand what they're getting into when they utilize a, a provider that does not accept the reference-based pricing, is that 
ERISA plans have a fiduciary obligation. And so when they select the vendors that they work with, you know, they have to consider potential conflicts of interest. When you look at a vendor to handle your reference-based pricing administration, most of them aren't willing to do so on a fixed price basis because they're just not going to make enough money off of it. Instead, they want to charge an amount to the plan that's based on savings realized. And the problem with this is in part because they are trying to negotiate the amount that they'll pay. Um, and whatever is left over is typically going to be a, a, an obligation on the insured or the participant of the plan. So they're pushing obligations off the plan onto the participant. So there's a bit of a conflict there. But there's also a conflict in that it, it benefits them if the provider charges an inflated rate as the bill charges because their savings will show more significantly and thus their rate in terms of a percentage of savings will be greater. So there's a bit of a conflict there that you really need to check into. Some vendors will charge a PEPM rate. Um, you may want to look for a vendor that does that. Uh, my understanding is that oftentimes those vendors may not provide as many services as, as those that take a percentage of the savings, mm -hmm. but give that some consideration as a fiduciary obligation when you're identifying an appropriate vendor for administering your reference-based pricing. Wow, definitely some great points on the ERISA front there to consider for employers that want to uh, dip their toe into this reference-based pricing. But thanks, Suzanne, for giving us a quick outline of the issues and digging into one case and outlining some of these issues. Uh, any last thoughts? Yeah, well, I want to just mention that I know that, you know, there's at least one reference-based pricing consultant I know of that sought to resolve disputes quickly through the use of arbitration, and that has seemed to be successful. And they also found that it led to results where the provider would receive a reasonable payment that was based more on what the provider actually receives in the marketplace, more so than all of these inflated rates or, you know, or, or uh, charge plus rates or, or anything. It's more of a market-based approach. And then another reference-based pricing vendor uses a Medicare Plus reimbursement multiplier as well as a cost plus approach and then pays the higher of the two. Again, this seems to get a better acceptance rate from the provider because it's showing some favorability towards them, yet driving down the cost for the plan overall. So just in summary, reference-based pricing may be something that plans want to consider if they're looking to lower their cost, especially if they tend to have higher facility costs because that's where the RBP savings tend to occur. Um, but we would recommend hiring a consultant or a claims repricer that can calculate the potential savings to determine if there is going to be savings there. And then make sure that you're using a TPA or administrator that is really experienced in reference-based pricing. Mm -hmm. You want to consider um, that they will go to the carpet for you and on those balanced bills and consider the pain points for your employees because it will can require significant education on the part of the employer and also ongoing support in dealing with those balanced bills that could occur. Right. So employers will definitely have to be more engaged right. overall. So great. Thanks, Suzanne. Thanks for uh, giving us a walk through this. And uh, as we like to say on the podcast, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us.